We're just listening to the house of mercy, waiting for the waters to stir. mood was Hobbesian, nasty, brutish, nihilistic, and no one embodied all this better than Donald Trump. Trump was no aberration or idiosyncrasy, as Mike saw it, but a reflection, a human mirror in which to see all we'd allowed ourselves to become. That was from Homeland Elegies, a novel by Ayed Akhtar. This is Debbie. Hi. Um, I'm recording from Malacca, Minnesota, and Russell is going to be right in from Las Vegas, Nevada. Glad you're here. Hey, this is Reverend Russell, and I am on uh, Interstate 15 on my way out of Las Vegas, leaving Las Vegas. Um, I know it's, it's a long story, but it's a good one. Um, yeah, like Debbie said, thanks uh, for tuning in for church tonight. And uh, just remind you that our pledge drive is ongoing. Um, please, if you haven't pledged yet, uh, do so. And we thank you for all of your support for House of Mercy. This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Please join me now in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, we pray for presence in this present time, that we don't pull the past with us into this moment, so we do not bundle up in resentments and regrets, longing for remorse. We pray for peace here now in this moment, that we don't project fear or anxiety, too much anticipatory promise or hope for salvation into the next moment and all the ones after that. We pray that we can breathe and be full of your spirit and empty of our will. Amen. Now may the peace of Christ be with you all and also with you. Please share a sign of peace with those around you and a thought of peace for those in the community from which you are a part. Once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. And then a little light from heaven filled my soul. It bathed my heart in love and wrote my name above. And just a little talk with Jesus made me whole. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry. Talk with Jesus makes it right. I may have doubts and fears, my eyes may fill with tears, but Jesus is a friend who watches day and night. I go to Him in prayer, He knows my every care, and just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. 
Won't you please join me now in the prayers of community? I'll end each prayer with Lord in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, it can seem like a lot to ask, to believe, to believe in any kind of good news when seemingly around every corner or turn of the calendar page we hear news both unbelievable and bad. But we have real reason to hope for the good, to believe in the good. But remind us that good news is rooted in something beyond us, that comes to us as gift, as a radical mercy from an unfathomable love. Compel us to repent of our idolatry, of placing our hope for both belief and hope for the good in that which fluctuates with every 24-hour media cycle. Compel us to be grateful for the possibility of a good news that comes from you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for our enemies and our friends, for those we love and for those we don't even know, but for whom we are still able to feel something like hatred. We pray for good things for them all. We pray that they know your love and mercy and that we may all step forward in mercy and the desire to live in your love. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for those in need of physical, emotional, and spiritual healing. We pray for all those who are sick with the virus, those who are sick from isolation and loneliness. We pray especially for Sonia's dad, a beautiful and faithful man. Give all those who care for him wisdom and compassion. Give him the peace and strength he needs. Be present to Sonia, Nancy, and their brothers, to Grace and all the grandchildren. We pray for those who are mourning the death of a lifelong partner, a child. We pray for those in prison and those who are prisoners of addiction. We pray for those of us who suffer from mental illness, both the depressed and the deluded. Bring healing to your world. God, in your mercy, hear our prayers. God of mercy, we have not loved you with all of ourselves. We have hurt those who are in our lives and those past in through our lives with the things we have done the things that we have left undone. Forgive us. We are confident that you judge us with your grace. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, meet us now in this time of silence. May we live in the mercy. Amen. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Now, after John was arrested, 
Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, who were in their boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. That story is, I guess you could say, sort of where the church begins. Jesus gets followers. I wonder if there'll be some time in my life when I will not feel so torn about whether that's a beautiful thing or some sort of maybe initially good and important thing that eventually went so wrong that you have to wonder if the future of humanity and the well-being of the planet would have been better served if Jesus had just skipped the whole followers part. And maybe, I don't know, just let the Holy Spirit or something do the work of spreading the good news because the followers of Christ are hardly ever very good at it, have done so much damage. Most obviously, recently, when some of them stormed the Capitol, intent on doing damage, carrying their Christian flags and Jesus saves signs. But the followers of Christ have done so much violence for so long with their anti-Semitism, white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia. Christians have also, I think, I hope, helped point to something true that is better than anything we could make up on our own. Although, that's a little hard to tell sometimes. Certainly Christians have loved and fed the hungry, helped move the world toward justice at times. The confessing church that opposed the Nazis, Mother Teresa, MLK, Oscar Romero, Liberation Theology, a thousand church soup kitchens, the Catholic worker, but the tortures of the Inquisition, the slaughter of the conquistadors, the utter decimation of indigenous cultures, QAnon. I mean, I guess you could just look at it all and say, well, the bad people who claim to be the followers of Christ simply are not. And the nonviolent, practicing, justice-seeking followers are. I mean, I want to draw a line between the type of Christianity displayed in the capital siege and the Christianity we believe. But I wonder if unfaithfulness, betrayal, violence is so deeply entwined in the fabric of the church's being 
that you can't just pull out the errant threads. That, that guy wearing the fur headdress with horns, Q Shaman, took them off, set them down to pray from behind the vice president's desk, thanking God for allowing the good people to enter the Capitol and send a message to the tyrants. And and Alabama said in his YouTube confession, I praised Jesus on the Senate floor. That was my goal. I think that was God's goal. I'm pretty sure those guys would want to draw a line between their Christianity and my socialist, libtard, heretical, faithless form of Christianity, if you can even call it that. It just has me wondering if drawing lines might not be the most helpful or true posture to take at this moment. I mean, I don't know. It might be. I want to do it. Draw a big, fat line. They seem so bloodthirsty. I'm not that. But then... When the reporter interviews the woman who is trying to protect the BLM memorial to those killed by police violence, and the Proud Boys march by, and she says, look at them, so full of hate and proud of it. If God was here, he would smite those mother effers. And I'm like, right on. I am right there with her. Smite those mother effers. So, I mean, I guess maybe there's some violence in me. The most dangerous terrorist threat in the United States is bloodthirsty, white supremacist, anti-Semitic, conspiracy-laden, very often Christian movements. This isn't a proud moment for Christianity. So Jesus is the best possible news ever, undoes death, heals, mercy never ending, indescribable goodness, fills our deepest need, accepts us totally more, loves us, likes us, creates and redeems us, gives us everlasting life. But what about his followers? The first words from Jesus' lips in Mark are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. I feel like it might have helped if he could have been a little clearer from the outset, maybe, about exactly what that meant. Because the misinterpretations and forced conversions and racist definitions of the kingdom, because of the violence that has been done in the name of the gospel. Jesus says to some unspecified audience, maybe to everyone ever, the readers throughout time, repent and believe in the good news. Then in the story, Jesus sees some fishermen. It sort of sounds like he's walking by the lake, looks over, and sees fishermen, just whoever happens to be there. No one's special. But he says to those people, follow me. Like, he wasn't Exactly screening for the cream of the crop, doing interviews, taking resumes. There's not a lot of information here, or actually anywhere in Mark, 
about who Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are. Smokers, drinkers, young punks, wife beaters, fools. And to be honest, what we learn about them from the subsequent story in Mark, not about their previous lives or personal details, we never get that, but how they interact with Jesus, what they understand about what he's doing, their general demeanor in relation to his mission, might lead us to believe Jesus could have possibly chosen better. Maybe after Jesus spent a few hours with these guys, he was like, shoot, why did I call these fishermen? Why didn't I wait to come across some poet or painter, some women? How about that? Vegans. What was I thinking with the fishermen? They make their living killing things. Maybe I should have very carefully chosen some totally nonviolent people in some totally nonviolent profession. Grape farmers. These guys don't seem that wise or nice. They hardly understand anything the whole time they're with Jesus. It's a really interesting story in Mark about the disciples, the followers. There's definitely not been much of an attempt to pretty them up. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Actually, it's kind of an ambiguous image, which could have been familiar to the men from Hebrew scripture. Because in Jeremiah, God says, I am sending for many fishermen to catch the sinners and many hunters who will hunt them from every mountain out of the clefts of the rocks, for they have polluted the land with their abominations. And the prophet Amos warns the elite classes of Israel who oppress the poor and crush the needy that they will be hauled away, drab, dragged by fishhooks to judgment. As evangelical Christian children, we sang a song about being fishers of men, as if the image was sort of cute. But it, it could be that the people who stormed the capital's embodiment of the metaphor from the prophets was a bit more on the nose. Let's get those fish hooks in the mouths of these wayward tyrants and hang them up on the lawn. Maybe the disciples were drawn to Jesus because they wanted to see Rome destroyed without mercy. Rome had been regulating the fishing industry to enrich the empire to the impoverishment of local people. Maybe the first disciples were eager to follow because they wanted to be like Galway's agents, fishing up and hunting down the tyrants. The disciples may have been misinterpreting Jesus from the very first moment. Jesus' desire is to gather all humans together into the kingdom of love and mercy, maybe a little like how fishermen gather fish into a net. But what the followers desire... It's a little ambiguous. What's sort of amazing is that Mark never really straightens out this ambiguity about the followers through his entire gospel. Like, their ambiguous nature might be part of the point. They never 
really seem to actually understand who Jesus is or what he's about. They argue over who's the greatest. Jesus has to remind them over and over again that it's not about them being the greatest. They cling to notions of a Messiah who is beyond suffering, and they continue to seek to enter his glory, never understanding what his glory is. They're afraid and untrusting. When the hemorrhaging woman touches him in a crowd and he asks, who touched me? They say, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Like, how stupid can you be? Sometimes it sort of seems to me like they don't even like Jesus that much. Jesus wants to feed the crowds that come and they're like, send them away. Jesus is like, no, you feed them. And they're like, shall we go and buy 200 days wages worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It doesn't always seem like they love him. Their hearts are hardened at times. Jesus does seem to get a little frustrated with, frustrated with them along the way. Do you not yet understand? Or maybe he's just sad. At one point, Jesus calls Peter Satan and says, Get thee behind me. You're not on the side of God, but men. And all the disciples participate in Jesus' death by betraying him. So why does Jesus call these people to follow him? We're going to mess up so badly over and over and over again. People who aren't going to understand, who have hard hearts sometimes, who are untrusting and afraid, who want their own glory, and are maybe not always that merciful or loving. Because he needs them, I think. Not so he can carry out some abstract mission like convert the heathens to Christian doctrine. Jesus needs them more in the way of desires them, wants them, loves them, needs them. It's not like Jesus needs a certain number of people to be like hired to take their place on some assembly line in order for the car to be manufactured correctly. Jesus doesn't involve them so they can help him build his car or what have you. He wants these thoroughly compromised, broken people with him because he loves them and he calls them to be part of beginning to demonstrate that love. Something about who the disciples are gives me such hope. These are the people Jesus wanted near him. He entrusted these people with his good news. It makes me believe he might want to be near me too. Jesus chooses everyone, everyone. I know, it's hard to believe. But still, what does it mean to repent and believe in the gospel? Who does it? Where do we see it? Maybe it's not spelled out explicitly because it's a little different different every time you have to do it. Every time you repent again. Maybe it's kind of slippery because it has to keep slipping from moment to moment, ear to ear, over thousands of generations, forever. Then, now, in the next moment, repent and believe in the good news for all 
people. Not vengeance, not violence, not we're right, they're wrong, we're good, they're bad. It's not like you ever cross over the line. It's not a line. It's mercy. The disciples, maybe they're mirrors for us to see ourselves. Never understanding, continually betraying, not believing, afraid, untrusting, loved, and called, and chosen. And somehow, charged with living our lives, however screwed up we are, still charged with living our lives in such a way that someone might glimpse the love of God, God's never-ending mercy. So our neighbors and enemies might glimpse it. In this or that moment, they might not be afraid. Maybe the followers are following when they aren't drawing lines, but repenting and believing in the good news of great joy for all people. This is the Lord's table and all are welcome. On the night before he suffered, our Lord took bread, gave thanks and broke it, saying, this is my body given for you, take and eat. And in the same manner, after the meal, he took the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all sins. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. To Canaan's land I'm on my way Where the soul of man never dies My darkest night will turn to day Where the soul of man never dies No dear friends, there'll be no sad farewells There'll be no tear-dimmed eyes Where all
Where all is peace and joy and love And the soul of man never dies And now may the profound peace, love, and mercy of God overwhelm you with belief.